Well, how is everybody doing this morning? Well, however good you are, I hope you're ready to do a little bit better. Because right now we're going to just draw from the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for Holy Spirit. We thank you that even you talked to your disciples. You told them, don't even leave this city before you're filled with power from on high. And so right now we just look to you, Father. We draw on you, Holy Spirit. We charge ourselves up and we build ourselves up on your goodness and your faithfulness. We thank for you for your revelation and your wisdom this morning. We thank you that as we open your word, your words come Come alive to us that we see your inspiration we see your intentions Lord we are filled with your thoughts and your ways your vision for our lives and so we cast aside our thoughts our ways and our vision because yours are always greater and we give you thanks for them Lord Holy Spirit whatever it is that you need to get done this morning we just open ourselves up in expectation and we get ourselves out of the way it's okay to change things we rather follow you, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. God is so good. Well, we're in week three of a series that was never meant to be. <laughs> and uh, why, why I say that is because we started this on Thanksgiving weekend, and I wasn't even supposed to preach that weekend. But as, a, as I was just stirring myself up one day while I was driving God dropped a message in there and it just kind of snowballed since then. So one of these days, Pastor Robin will actually get his slot once, once we're done. <laughs> but we started three weeks ago with a, with a message called Unstuck. And God is the king of getting us unstuck because the reality is we all get stuck sometimes, but he knows how to get you moving. No matter how deep the rut, how big the hole, how wide the obstacle, God can get you moving again if you want to work with him on it. He is not limited in his resources or in his ways to get you out of the ruts you get in. You know, I was thinking about it this week, and I, I was like, oh, I don't really want to share that. But then I was like, hey, why not? I'm, I'm transparent. I live in a glass house. And uh, I was thinking back to right after high school, you know, I really had no purpose, no vision for what I wanted to do other than I want to play loud rock and roll music. I want to blast my ears out. And... Uh, I was having a great time that way, but I was lacking in vision, and it started to lead me into a little bit of a depression, and so I think it was like several weeks where I've just basically spent my day lying on my mom's couch, just like, uh. And one day, mom, if you know her, this just fits so well, she comes and she leads down beside me, and you know, ev to everybody else, she always seems so sweet. <laughs> She's downstairs. She can't defend herself. So I can share this story. And she says, Jordan, I love you, but do something. <laughs> and when you read between my mother's words, it's basically, you get off my couch and out my door, or I'm going to forcefully make you do it. And sometimes I think we wish God would do the same things, but God is not going to make you do something you don't want to. But when you say, God, I'm a little stuck, he comes and just gives you that nudge that you need and gets you moving. 
And stuck basically means to be or to become fixed or jammed in one place as a result of an obstruction. And so when we started, we were looking at the children of Israel in the time of Exodus, and they had been stuck physically for a lot of years. They were slaves of the Egyptian empire, and they really needed God to come down and do a miracle, so he did. And we have the ten plagues that get them set free, and they get moving out of their physical rut, and that's in Exodus 13 and 14. And when we think about ruts, we often think that we got there because it was some sort of failure on our part, or some, uh, somehow we messed up, or we got into the wrong things. But for the children of Israel, that wasn't the case. What began as a blessing for them turned into slavery. And so where God had sent them for provision for a season, they had tried to turn it into, well, why don't we just stay here? It'll be great. And that's never a good place. When you stop moving, that's when things begin to stagnate. If you find a pond that has no outlet, it begins to stink. It begins to smell, and it stops having that life-giving nature. When God sets, brings you somewhere for a season, he often doesn't leave you there forever. He has more for you, and that's how we go from faith to faith from glory to glory, from victory to victory, because God is not content just to give you a little bit. If you'll walk with him, he'll take you further than you ever thought you could go. He'll bring you into things that you didn't even dream of when you were in this level, and he just keeps bringing you through. But So he gets the children of Israel moving, but their physical stuckness wasn't their main issue. After 430 years of slavery, their mentality was stuck, and that proved more fatal to them than their physical stuckness, because God brought them out miraculously, and they find themselves at the edge of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army off their back, and immediately what their response is, they begin to panic, they begin to cry out in grief, they begin to turn on Moses and say, why have you brought us out here to die? Was there not enough graves back then? The victory that they had seen for their physical stuckness was no longer adequate for their mental stuckness, and they begin to break down, and we've seen this pattern repeated over and over again. God splits the Red Sea, they walk through, and they're like, yeah, this is great. Three days later, let's kill Moses, we're all going to all going to uh, suffocate out here in the desert because we've got no water. And so God provides them supernaturally water and they're like, "Oh, great." 15 days later, they're all like, "We should kill Moses. Get us a new leader. We don't have any meat to eat." And we found them here in Exodus 16:3 says, "If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. God wasn't the one trying to kill them in Egypt." But they said this, they said, there we sat around pots filled with meat, and we ate all the bread we wanted. No, you didn't. You were slaves. And it says, but now you have brought us out into the wilderness to starve us. And this cycle is repeated because a stuck mentality will cause you to forget and to doubt the promises God has given you. And for them, they had a lot of those promises to pull on. If we even just look at what he had said to their patriarch, he said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make you famous, and I will make you a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. 
And so if they were just to stop and consider the words that God had spoken to them as a nation, this is what he's saying to Abram of his descendants, and they are physically his descendants. God's words for them was, I have blessed you. I will make you great. And sometimes in the midst of our trials and our tribulations, we begin to forget that God has spoken those things same things to us. In Galatians 3.13 it says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us as it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that or in order for that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus and that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. And so that same blessing that was on them as the physical descendants have now come upon the New Testament believers through Christ Jesus. God says, I will bless you. I will make you great. And through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because he set his blessing upon you. Do you know what the word bless actually means? It means he's empowered you to prosper. And people don't like that word because when they hear it, they think, oh, money, money, money. That's like the lowest form of prosperity. You can prosper a emotionally, physically, financially, yes, but spiritually, in your relationships, God just wants to have every area of your, your life empowered to grow. He doesn't want you to be stuck in the same rut over and over again. And so the words that he spoke to Israel are the same ones that he's blessed you with. It says that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles, and that's what he had said to Abraham. And so though we look at Israel and we're like, oh, look at them, you know, three days and then 15 days and they're complaining and turning on God, but yet we do the same thing with our actions sometimes. When God is just saying, why don't you just line up your thoughts, your words, and your actions on the blessing side rather than the complaint side? But the reason why the nation of Israel continued to be stuck mentally is because stuck is the past participle of stick. Now, maybe we need to do a little bit of an English lesson here, but what is a past participle? It's just what it sounds like. The things they participated in the past have now participated in their stuckness. <laughs> Got it. Let's make it a little simpler then for you. What you stick to will determine what you get stuck in. Oh, clear as mud. But they were determined to stick to their negative attitudes about the situations that were going on around them. When you would think after freedom from slavery, Red Sea crossing, water purified, manna from heaven, quail lands, more than enough meat, blessing after blessing after blessing, you would think that they would see an obstacle as an opportunity for miracles. Because every time God came through, every time they complained. So they were unwilling to change what they were sticking themselves to. Basically, stick just means to adhere or to cling to something. And so last week we ended with Paul's instructions to Timothy where he says this, cling to your faith in Christ 
and keep your conscience clear. And so Paul said, make yourself sticky, Timothy, and hold on to your faith. But Isaiah said this. He says, the Lord says, don't cling to the events or the past or dwell on what happened long ago. So basically Isaiah is saying, don't be sticky to your past, which means you have a choice. You can be sticky to your faith or you can be sticky to your obstacles. You can be sticky to your God or you can be sticky to your problem. You can be sticky to the word of God or you can be sticky to your negative words. You can be sticky to God's thoughts or you can be sticky to your negative ones. And what you choose to stick to will determine what you get stuck in. But as I was thinking about this week, stuck being a problem is really dependent upon what you're stuck to. When you're stuck to God, that is not a problem at all. It's kind of like, you know, if you were in high school and you and your sweetheart got stuck in an elevator, that's really not that big of a problem. Maybe that's just like a teenage boy mind perspective on it. (laughs) You're stuck in a moat filled with alligators? That's a problem. So it depends upon what you're stuck in, whether it's a problem or not. And so what you stick to will determine what you get stuck in, and if you don't like what you're stuck in, maybe we should change what you stick to. (laughs) And so Pastor Robin asked me this week, he said, so what are you going to preach on this week? And I just jokingly said, hey, we're going to preach on superglue. <laughs> but Paul's instruction to Timothy was, cling or glue yourself to your faith in Christ. And if Paul said you, Timothy to do it, it means it's possible. Because right. God never gives us any instructions that we cannot walk out. Right. So, How do we get clingy? Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 6. How's everybody doing this morning? Maybe raining outside, but it's nice and sunny in here. Hebrews chapter 6, and in verse 11, it starts off this way. It says, and we desire that each one of you, okay, so he says each one. So he's not cherry-picking, oh, this is for the good ones and this is for the bad ones. He says, this is what where our instructions are for each one of you. He says that you show the same, everyone say the word, diligence. And what was he saying to show diligence to? The full assurance of hope till the end. Show diligence to your full assurance of hope until the end. Now, we have to go back and just do some basics here again. Hope is a really simple Greek word, and it just means this. It's a confident expectation of good things to come. And so what the writer of Hebrews here is saying, I believe it's Paul just because of his word styling, but he says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to, we could insert it this way, to having a confidence of good things to come. He's asking you to be diligent in having confidence in good things to come. Let's say this again. He's asking you to have diligence in having confidence in good things to come. So how would this look like 
in the nation of Israel in the stories we've been using. You get to the Red Sea. The Egyptians are coming up behind you. You say, God, I know you're coming through for me. You find yourself in the middle of the desert with no water. You feel like I'm just going to die of thirst out here. God, I believe there's a river coming for me. You find yourself hungry after not having meat for several days. You say, God, I know you're coming through for me. You know, the, I love that the psalmist, he used such great descriptive words all the time. He satisfies my mouth with good things. You know, David sometimes had confidence issues and he would complain and complain and complain and complain and then like a light would go off and he'd be like, oh no, I've just complained for two verses. So let's have good confidence for the next 50 and it's not about never having a negative thing to say. But when you find yourself in a constant negative Nelly attitude, assess your words. Am I speaking what God has said? Am I speaking God's thoughts on the situation I've just found myself in? And so here he says, I want each one of you to show diligence in your confidence of e confident expectation of good things to come and that you don't become sluggish. Now, these are words that we generally don't want to hear. Diligence is kind of like you think of like the, uh, you think of Jessica in school. <laughs> and most people would be like, well, that's not such a bad thing if you're a parent, but as a kid, you're like, oh, I don't want to be like her. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Jess, I'm just picking on you. She's an easy target sometimes. But then we also think of the word sluggish, and what do you think of when you hear sluggish? You think of someone who's lazy, who doesn't contribute, someone who's not of much value. And God is saying that by not focusing on diligence of being hopeful, we can actually find ourselves being sluggish. But he says, but instead of being sluggish, he says, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise imitate. I like what Paul said. He says, hey, do what I do as I do what God does. If sometimes if you don't know what to do, find someone else who's hopeful and latch yourself onto their chariot. Let them go for a little run and copy them. Find people who are going places and go somewhere with them. You'll always find a group to complain with. But that just makes the ones who are actually going somewhere easier to spot because they're the ones out there usually by themselves. So he tells us to be diligent, don't be sluggish, and to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then he just switches the topic and starts talking about covenant. And here's what he said. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely, blessing, I will bless you, and by multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, this is now Abraham they're talking about, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And this is a, a situation where the Bible has neatly stitched the whole story up. Abraham patiently endured, and he got the promise. You realize that in that statement consists about 25 years 
of Abraham trying to how to figure out how to do it right, screwing it up a bunch of times, and God only looks back and sees his faithfulness to endure. And a lot of us are thinking that God is looking at our failures, but actually he doesn't. The blood of Jesus has already wiped those out. And so when God looks back, he just sees Abraham faithfully enduring. And when he looks back at your life, he's only going to see the places where you faithfully stuck to what he said. Because he's already wiped all the other junk out. He says as far as the east is from the west. And so if it's not bothering him, we should stop letting it bother us. And he says, for indeed, men indeed swear by the greater And an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Okay, so what's he talking about? In a covenant, that's not something we really do in North America these days. But in the time of Abraham... It was, it was a tribalistic system. So you'd have like a group of people here and a group of people here and they'd all start fighting each other and eventually you'd want to find somebody to ally yourself with so that it'd deter others from attacking you. So they would get into covenant and basically it would say though we're separate entities, we are now becoming one. When you're attacked, I'm attacked. When I'm attacked, you're attacked. Everything I have is now yours and everything you have is now mine. It was basically a merging together of two groups based upon a covenant that was unbreakable. The punishment for breaking a covenant was death. And so it says here that men swear by the greater. But if we go back a few verses here, It says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And so when it comes to the covenant that we have with God, he is the greater one. When he came to the covenant table, you had nothing to offer, and he had everything, and he still said, that's a good deal. (laughs) And it said, once the oath of confirmation has been made, That's the end of all the dispute. So while the nation of Israel might be out there whining and complaining, there's no disputing God's already ready to come through because the covenant has made sure of that. You know, I think we need to do a, a series on blood covenant. It's been a while. God has ended the dispute. He said, I'm for you and not against you. I will bless you and I will multiply you. Why are Christians disputing this? He said the covenant has ended the dispute. He's already made the oath. He says, thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel. Big word there, so we'll back up for a second. Immutability basically means it hasn't changed and it cannot change. So God determining to show you that his promise It can't change. He confirmed it by an oath. So God not only only promised he would bless you, he then swore it by an oath. And in order for him to break it, he would have to self-destruct. That's how covenants work. When they're broken, death is the result. And so God basically, when he swore by himself, he said, in order for this to fail, I would no longer have to exist. But I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the one who was and is and is to come. He's not breaking his covenant today or any day. 
And he said that by two immutable, inimmutable things, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope. Lay hold. That sounds a little clingy to me. Lay hold of hope. Meaning we have a choice of what we lay hold of. We can lay hold of the negativity. We're going to die in the desert. Or we can lay hold of the hope. My God is coming through for me. And it says, this hope we have as an anchor for our soul. That sounds like super glue. Anchors are meant not to break. You super glue something to your face and we'll just find out how easy it is to get it off. <laughs> Says this hope we have as an anchor for our soul. Now he's not talking about your spirit. Your spirit doesn't need an anchor. It's already tethered to God. The word here is your mind, your will, and your emotions. Your mind, your will, and emotions will go in the direction you allow them to go in. And here it says, hope is an anchor that puts them in the right direction. And it says both sure and steadfast. And then it says, and which enters the presence beyond the veil. This is a type and shadow of, if you went into the Old, te Old Testament uh, temple, there would have been the main area of the temple, but then there was a veil that separated the holy of holies. And that's where God came and lived. That's where his presence was. And you weren't allowed to go in there. But it says when we use hope as an anchor, it takes us beyond the veil. It steps us into the presence of God. Hallelujah. And it says where the forerunner has entered for us, what is a forerunner? It's the one that goes first so that others can go second. Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It's easy to cling to God when you know the nature of his goodness. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever that it's impossible for him to lie. Or it also says that he, he is not like a man, that he can change his mind. Or James, it says that he has no shadow of turning. But religion treats God as though he has multiple personalities. You never know which God you're going to get when you go to him in prayer, so why would you go to him? God is not broken in his mind. He will always respond to you in love. Just because religion has portrayed him as the angry one doesn't mean that he is. When you go to God, you will find love. Let's jump over to Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, it says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, we generally talk about Romans 10 as being a salvation 
uh, chapter, and it is. But when he uses the word here for saved, it's not the standard word that's used for salvation, which is soteria. It's actually the word sozo. And it means simply saved, but it means to save, to keep safe, to rescue from danger or destruction, to save a suffering one, one suffering from disease, to make well, restore to health, or to preserve. So when it says, all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, religion has relegated this down to, yes, if you call on God, you can go to heaven one day. Oh, happy day. But here, the word that's used, and I think God's pretty specific when he chose the language he had it written in. That this is a very inclusive word, that whatever the pit you found yourself in, he can save you from. Whatever the stuckness is, he can fix it. And it says, all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then Paul starts asking some questions. And he says, how then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And and how can they believe in in him whom they've never heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how shall they uh, preach unless they're sent? And then he says, as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. I think that just discredited a whole lot of ministers out there who when you listen to them, there is nothing but, there's no peace in it. There's no glad tidings of good things. When we come towards God, you'll find good news because that's literally what the gospel means, good news. I think you could even sit in a message that is corrective and a rebuke and you should still come out feeling peace and hearing good gladdings of good tidings. Because that's what flows out from the heart of God. Nothing but love. But it says, but they have not obeyed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And then he says, So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What are we talking about? We said we're talking about how do we get clingy. And here it tells us if we're to cling to faith, isn't that what he told Timothy? Cling to your faith. Here it says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But this verse has actually been very well misrepresented. And if you'll notice here, I've added in the italics, and I've been noticing more and more in the electronic versions, they're not doing this anymore. But if you go back to your King James or your New King James in a written form, you'll see that in verse 17, the word is italicized, which is why I've reflected it here. What does that mean, Pastor Jordan? Why does that affect me? When it is italicized, it means that word was added by the translators because they thought it made the, word, the verse flow better. But literally this word, word thing it says, then faith by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You don't need faith to come. You've already got faith. Two chapters later, oh, I just shut my notes here. Two chapters later, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, back, back, come on, come on, go in the wrong direction. There we go. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. 
And I always use the King James or the New King James for this because the modern translation, all seem to render it that he's given us a measure of faith. And that's not what the Greek says here. It says the measure, meaning he has a standard measurement for faith and he gives Garnet that measurement and Doug that measurement and Jessica that measurement. And what religion likes to tell us is that he gave a lot to Doreen and maybe a little to Gail and a mediocre one to Christopher and then a whole lot to John. And that's how they can justify, well, I don't do the same things as so-and-so because I just don't have the same measure of faith. No, you do. You've got the measure that God gives every believer. And you don't need faith to come. Faith doesn't come and go. It engages with what you feed it. You feed it the word and it comes alive. It latches hold of things and it changes situations. One of my favorite verses in all of the Psalms is in 119, 130. It says, the entrance of your words gives light. And it gives understanding to the simple. What entered onto the scene? His words. And when his words are fed into your life, faith grabs hold. And so we said with the nation of Israel that faith today didn't mean faith always. They had faith for three days until the water was bitter. They had faith for 15 days until there was no more meat to eat. They had faith for another season until Moses spent too much time on the mountain. They had faith for another stretch until they were out of water again. And so their faith was up and down because they were not anchoring themselves on the promise that had been given. But what Paul said, he said, if you want to be saved, you call on God. If you want to be able to call on God, you need to believe. In order to believe, you need to hear. You want to get clingy to the things of God? check out what you're hearing about them. The word of God was meant to be an anchor and a fuel for our faith. So we should see this reflected in the story, right? And so if we jump to Numbers chapter 13, here we find the nation of Israel. They've traveled the entire journey now from Egypt and they're right on the border of the promised land. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving. So this is God's word that they should be founding themselves on. The land that you're now looking into, I'm giving it to you. That should be the only word that mattered. And he said, choose from each tribe of the fathers and send a man, everyone a leader among them. And so Moses did as the Lord commanded. And he sent out 12 men, all tribal leaders from Israel, from their camp into the wilderness of Paran. So they sent out Shemua, Shaphat, Caleb, Egal, Joshua, Pardi, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sethur, Nahabi, and Gehul. <laughs> and I always think it's funny that, you know, like when people are naming their kids biblical names, we get lots of Caleb's and Joshua's. I'm saying, where's the Gehul's? <laughs> there you go, Lacey. That's a perfect name. Just kidding. <coughs> Excuse me. And Moses gave the men these instructions. And he sent them out to explore the land. And he said, go through the Negev into the hill country. And here's Moses' instructions. These are not God's instructions. These are Moses' instructions. God just said, you're at the land. It's all yours. And Moses said, see what the land is like. 
Find out whether the people there are living are strong or weak or few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Do they have towns or walls? Or are they unprotected in open camps? Is the soil fertile or poor? Uh, are there many trees? And do your best to bring back some samples of the crops you see because it happened to be the season for harvesting the ripe, first ripe grapes. And he says, so when they went up, they explored the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob until whatever that other one is. And going north, they passed through the Negev. And after they arrived at Hebron, where all those other people lived, they found some giants. And, you know, they found a city that would, was there, ancient. And when they came to the valley of Ashol, they cut down a branch of a single cluster of grapes. And it was so large that it took two of them to carry it on a pole between them, yada, yada, yada. This is, this is just kind of like, you know, they're wandering around doing what Moses told them to do. And after exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses and to Aaron and to the whole community at Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and they showed them the fruit that they had taken from the land. And this was their report to Moses. We have entered the land you have sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey, and here's the kind of fruit it produces. This is where the conversation should have ended. It's a good land. It's the land God gave us, so of course it's going to be good. But it says, but. And this is where we need to learn to get our butts out of the way. You take what God has said and run with it. But here they now want to interject their butt. But the people living there are powerful and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. And it says the Amalekites live in the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites live on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea all along the Jordan Valley. But, now here we get someone inserts a good but, Caleb steps into the situation and he quiets the people who stood before Moses. And he says, let's go at once and take the land. We can certainly conquer it. That is the right answer. Why? Because God said it's yours. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. So they spread their bad report about the land among the Israelites, the land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes and li to live there. All of the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak, and next to them we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. How do you know what they thought? Did you go and ask them, hey, buddy, do I look like a grasshopper to you? People's insecurities and fears will lead them to believe things that are not true. Do you know that when the nation of Israel finally entered to take the land 45 years later, the people were afraid of them? You've been sitting at our border for 45 years and we've just been waiting for you to come and kill us. The perspectives were not even close to being true. And says the whole community began weeping aloud and they cried all night. And their voices rose in a great chorus. 
of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt or even in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? And it just goes on and on. And the more they think about it, the worse they get, the worse the defeat's going to be. Our children are going to be slaves. And your fearful thoughts and the things you latch onto will take you further than you want to go. Sin always does, and that's what sin is. Anything that is not of God is sin. And so our own negativity can have us run a route of sin that God is wanting us to run a route of victory. And it says they plotted among themselves, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell face down on the ground before the whole community because it's kind of like, oh my goodness, they're about to kill us and choose a new leader. But two of the men who had explored the land, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, they tore their clothing and they said to all the people, the land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It's a rich land flowing with milk and honey. You know, I don't believe for a second that's a, and if the Lord is pleased with us. No, it was more of trying to rallying people. If God is with us, why are we doing this when we should be doing that? And so they said, don't rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. This is a severe lesson in the majority is not always right. And sometimes when you go God's way, you'll be out here by yourself. But in the end, it's better if you follow with God. But the whole community then began talking of stoning Joshua and Caleb. And a man in faith will always outlast a majority in fear. Because what happens is over the next 45 years, that entire generation dies. And God brings up a generation that doesn't know slavery. Because that's the thing that Israel wouldn't let go of. They kept thinking about, we should go back, we should go back, we should go back. And so God brought somebody in who didn't remember back. But you would think, after having to wait for 45 years, that maybe Caleb would have simmered a little. I love that he didn't. He says this, I was 45 years, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me to, from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land of Canaan. And I returned and I gave an honest report. But my brothers who went with me were frightened They frightened the people from entering the promised land. And for my part, I wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. So that that day, Moses solemnly promised me, the land of Canaan on which you were just walking will be your grant of land and that your descendants forever because you wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. And then Caleb says this, now as you can see, the Lord has kept me alive as well as he promised me all these 45 years since Moses made those promises. And even while Israel wandered in the wilderness, today, I'm 85 years old. That was already a good speech. 
You want to know what that man went on to say? He says, I'm as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey. I can still travel. I can fight as well as I could then. So give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. When you're old, you don't want to have to fight uphill. But Caleb said, give me my mountain. And he says, and, and you'll remember that as scouts, we found that that's where the giants live. So not only was he saying, let me fight an uphill battle, I'll go take the hard ones. Why? Because faith, as Mark Hankins says, will cause you to grab a corn stalk, swing out over hell, and spit in the devil's eye. <laughs> faith will give you a backbone yeah. when you believe the word that God has said. And the word for Caleb was, it's all yours. So whether it's the big guys or the little guys, it doesn't matter it's all mine. And what has God spoken about you? I will bless you and I will multiply you. I will make your name great. And what he has spoken is true. So Father, we thank you for your blessing. We thank you for your words that we know that we can take your word and cling to it. That we can set it in our hands and hold on to it and like it's glued there. We thank you, Father, that we don't have to follow what the world says. We don't have to have the world's results. We get God results because we follow God words. And so we thank you for what you've given us. We thank you for it. Now, maybe you've been watching us this morning via the internet and you haven't made God your God. It doesn't take much. All it says, all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we'd love to pray with you right now. Come on, church. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And right now I receive him. I receive all that he's provided for me. I declare that he is my Lord. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love for you to reach out to us. We'd love to get you hooked up with a good church in your area and get some resources into your hand. But guys, God's word stands unchanged forever it says it never changes and so if that's the type of results that they got holding on to his word how much more you being a new covenant son and daughter of the most high God some food for thought what are you clinging to that gets to be your choice you guys are blessed. Have a wonderful week. Let's all have some coffee and some good fellowship.